0: You are listening to the Tech Heads F1 podcast with Bryson, Molly, and Dr. Ops. Welcome back to the Tech Heads F1 podcast. I am your host, Bryson Sullivan, joined on this fine evening by my co-hosts, Dr. Obbs, and Molly Oxner. How are we today?
1: I'm doing good. How are you guys? It's been a little bit of a crazy week, but it's race week again, finally. So I'm very excited to get back to racing. Uh, some other series that I'm into are winding down. There's a couple of uh, championships this weekend. So I look forward to Singapore and then also um, IMSA has their championship this weekend. So it should be a good week.
0: Yeah, very much looking forward to the racing season sort of winding down and some championships being decided. I think this podcast is very much in a direct sense an F1 tech podcast, but more generally, I would describe it as a motorsport podcast, right? That, inc- of course, includes F1, but also encompasses other racing series like WEC and Endurance Racing and other open wheel series like Super Formula, or, of course, IndyCar. And obviously, we talk a lot with engineers and technical people to get their feel for how motorsport technology kind of expresses itself from the design side. But it would also be interesting to talk about drivers and how drivers extract the most performance in the car in a given race weekend. And also how they feed back development information to the engineers when creating new cars or developing things for a new season. And we have a very special guest this evening who actually happens to kind of straddle that line. I'd like to bring to the studio Dalton Kellett. How are you doing today, Dalton?
2: Doing great, Bryson. Thanks for thanks for having me having me on.
0: It's not every day you get an opportunity to speak to a a real life IndyCar driver, <laughs> but we we had that opportunity today, so I just wanted to thank you for taking the time to come speak to us.
2: No problem. Like you said, it's uh in in your intro, we're getting to the tail end of the racing season and the IndyCar season wrapped up a couple weeks ago, so I've uh, got a little bit of, little bit of time on, on my hands right now and uh, you know, can't think of a better thing to do than talk racing and engineering.
0: Dalton has been an IndyCar driver for uh, AJ Foyt Racing. He's from Canada, and he's been racing IndyCar since 2020. But before that, he was racing in Indy Lights for five years, four of which were with Andretti Autosport, where he collected multiple podium finishes. But what I think makes you special, Dalton, is that you're not just a racing driver, you're also an engineer. And you have a Bachelor of Science of Engineering in Physics from Queen's University, and you're very passionate about STEM and, you know, Formula SAE and just the general design of race cars and teaching people about how they actually work. I think that's something that's rare in the motorsport community. And just wanted to thank you for giving us an opportunity to learn from you.
2: No problem. I think you know it's kind of funny with my uh, with just my undergrad. I feel like I'm the small fry in in this group. We've got PhDs and master students and everyone around. But I think yeah, among the driving community, there's not a ton of drivers that have post secondary degree and let alone something in in technical like engineering physics, which is what I went through at Queens University. And it's you know for my whole career, it's just really been a, a passion of mine to use the platform that I have in racing to help promote STEM. I think as an athlete, a small public figure kind of thing, You, I, I've, I've always taken the, the perspective that it's important to use your platform for something that you believe in. And you kind of have to choose a lane if you want to have a, a measurable effect. So for me, that's STEM. And it, it's great because it's something that I think is really interesting. And racing is an awesome real life application for STEM principles. And it's a really cool way to get kids inspired, which is sort of what I try to do with it.
3: Yeah, Dalton. You won't get any arguments from us. We're big fans of STEM, and uh, <laughs> yes, I'm definitely. I'm I myself have three kids, and I absolutely love talking about engineering, science, math, all those things with my kids. But let's go back in time a little bit and start from young Dalton. How did you get into motorsports? Kind of what got you interested in the motorsports? What got you interested in science, physics, all those things?
2: Yeah. So you know, young Dalton was. Uh... Definitely a nerdy kid, uh, very techie, Legos, Connects, and all that. When I was really young, my first racing experience, this is a super Canadian story, by the way, was on a frozen lake on a skidoo with uh, some family friends of ours. And we were probably two years old. Maybe our our parents bought us these uh like 80cc two-stroke little Arctic cats. They were called mini cats or kitty cats or something like that. They looked like a milk crate with a ski and, and a track coming out the back. They were super tiny. So our, our parents would set up these little oval courses on on the ice for us and me and some friends would actually boot around and race when we were little kids a good friend of my dad so the father of of those guys that i was racing with peter clute uh was the host on dream car garage and pete's kids gary and ryan are you know two of my best friends they grew up you know racing go-karts and all that after our our beginning in skidoos and the initial exposure to racing was really through them like they were good friends and i'd just seen them racing carts and Always loved, you know, vehicles and stuff like skidoos, ATVs, dirt bikes. And that was a lot of my summers and weekends as a kid It was up at the cottage in, in Ontario, you know, booting around on the lake on boats or, you know, with our ATVs and stuff. So, you know, the the vehicle side of it was kind of always present in in my life. And then as I got older, I got really interested in just the mechanics behind it and how things actually worked and the motors and all that, and did a little bit of messing around with taking apart some engines and whatnot. And then once I got into school and high school, like where I think my interest in, you know, more like Formal STEM, like science and math, really came when I had a choice to choose courses. I think that that was the big turning point for me. Like I, I honestly could say I was kind of a not an underperforming student, student, but like an apathetic student throughout most of middle school and all that. I just was like not that interested. But then once it was like, oh, you can choose a course, then I felt I don't know if it was just having the control of my own destiny, you know, sort of feel. But when, once I could choose, like I want to do the math course or higher physics or all that, like then I got really into it. And that was kind of where my academic interest really took off.
1: Is that part of what led you to go into engineering physics? I know we all love the engineering and science behind race cars, and sometimes it's very complex. um, Sometimes it's very simple. But do you think that that is what led you to the degree path that you took?
2: Oh, for for sure. And you know, the I I think my whole life I knew I wanted to wanted to be an engineer, uh, or at least wanted to do something technical. Uh, I just was the only thing that I ever felt like made sense for what I was into and my personality. And then, you know, I started racing go-karts around 13 years old and that, that was really a a great experience because it, it, you know, I had my techie sort of nerdy interest and then I had my own vehicle. And it was like, I think for a young kid, like a a go-kart is a great learning tool for, you know, just being responsible for your own thing and it's your own little world and you work on it and clean it and keep it in working order. So I think, it just they it just kind of grew together like the the racing and 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 the interest in in engineering when i was in high school and you know looking at universities and, and programs i was actually really close to going to mcgill for physics and you know i got in there for mech and then for just straight fizz and then queens and, and U uft and at the time i think i was just more interested in pure physics than the practical stuff but I think there was a pragmatic part of my brain that was like well an engineering degree just makes more sense from a job standpoint and then with the family business K Line being a you know having a manufacturing side of it the materials program which is what I went into within and within Enphs was really aligned with like the kind of future of that business so it made more sense to, to pursue engineering and really the Enphs program at Queens when I saw that I was like perfect it's it's mostly physics but you still get your BSc and then you can get your PE and all that so it's kind of the best of both worlds
0: One of my great envies in life is not being able to have this carding experience that so many people have when they were young kids. I got into karting like very late and very amateurish for sure, but I just love it so much and I can only imagine what it would have been like if I had an opportunity to actually drive a reasonably powerful kart as a kid. I probably would have crashed it, to be fair, <laughs> but I but but I would have enjoyed it and I would have learned something about vehicle dynamics. Right? But but no, I mean I think this experience that many people have in university and the ability to apply engineering principles is really amazing and one of the cool ways in which people do that in school is a sort of formula SAE or the uh, Formula student team that has various forms in different countries all over the world. Can you describe a little bit about what that is actually like and your involvement in it in any degree either previously or currently?
2: Yeah. So, and I'm sure most of your listeners are familiar, but for those that aren't, and I don't know if you guys have talked about it on the podcast before, but, you know, Formula SA, it's a student design team at the collegiate level, uh, teams of mostly engineering students, but also business students. And at least at Queens, you could, you know, we had, we had, a, we, even had an, we even had an art student involved, uh, but really it's, you know, you're designing and building, manufacturing, racing, testing, developing your own small open wheel race car. Uh, most of them are Four-cylinder bike motors. Some of them are single-cylinder uh, ATV, uh, ATV motors. Now there's also an electric and hybrid wing of of those competitions. As you said, it's international, so you're competing and racing against students from universities all over the world, which is super exciting. And I, you know, from I, I, I knew Queens had a Formula SAE program because I had heard about it in high school, and I can't remember if I heard about it when like, you know, they'd come and do the, the university fairs, like they, the, the schools would send out like a representative and they'd give a you know, kind of do like do their pitch in, in your guidance class. It was either then or one of our guidance counselors was like, oh yeah, this would definitely be something Dalton would would be interested in. So some friends and I actually went and toured a couple of universities over like a long weekend with our parents uh, when we were all in grade twelve and we went and looked at Queens and actually saw the formula team and, and their shop then uh, which was a really cool, like the the Queen's shop is great because the mechanical engineering building, McLaughlin Hall it's called, they have probably the biggest student accessible machine shop of any school in Canada. And the formula team has their own garage and all that. So when I saw that, I was like, there's all these lathes and mills and CNC stuff and welding. I was like, I've got to be involved with this. So the first week that I was at Queens, I went right over to the Formula team, and you know, probably eighteen at the time, cocky go kart and race car driver. I was like, "Hey, I'm a you know driver. Want to want to be involved? Like probably help you guys out with the with the with the driving stuff and all that." And was pretty much in just involved from day one. Like that program was such a good experience for me at Queens. I just loved everything that that I learned there. Like the project based learning teams for for students. Like I think that's really. One of the best, one of the best things you can add to your university experience.
0: Yeah, I guess I, I had a question about that actually, because as you mentioned, you have this karting experience and you have actual ability to and skill in driving cars. Did you have like a, a shootout competition in your team to decide who was the actual driver who was going to actually pilot this <laughs> Frankenstein's monster that you created in the garage somewhere?
2: <laughs> yeah, I think that like the, the and w- when I first showed up, it, it, like uh, I think they were doing a test day like that week. Um, so they were like, well, you know, it's usually the fourth years to get to drive thir- you know, third or fourth years. like It's just a seniority thing, yada, yada. And I was like, all right, all right, fine. But like, let me, let me come and just, you know, let's just see. And then where we used to test in the little sidebar story, we used to test at the Kingston International Airport. I think it's international. Yeah. I think flights coming from, from New York, KGH. They would basically cone off like half the ramp for us and we could set up our own little cone course. And it was still an active taxiway. Like we'd be driving our car and there'd be like, it'd be Air Canada Jazz would fly in there. So there'd be dash eights like taxiing 200 (laughs) feet beside us while we're in this thing with like questionable student engineering. It always (laughs) seemed a bit unsafe. Anyway, side side story. So we go to this test day and they're driving around and I can't remember quite how it came to be, but I convinced them to let me like take a few laps and like right away I was, you know, a a few seconds quicker than anyone else else they had there just because there was no one with real racing experience. And. Um, they were like, all right, you're, you're the you're the you're the driver from now on. And then the way we did it, as the older people kind of cycled out, and it's always you know when when some me and my peers were then running the team, we always tried to like give everyone the experience to drive the car because you know you put so much time and effort in. It was always kind of obvious like who the drivers were were, were going to be. I would drive for most of our competitions, and then I was really lucky, or our, our, you know, we we as a team we were we were really fortunate where we had. You know, me with my go-karting and some of the road to indie experience at that time, we had a, a guy, Lee, who him, him and his dad built Neons and they would go race those in like an SCCA series. We had another, another guy, Scott, who had like late model experience. So we had like three racers on the on the team. Um, so I think we were pretty strong from a driving standpoint, but we would also have, you know, sort of a shootout testing thing to see who would drive for the other competitions. But yeah, those 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 programs are great. I, I, I really think Formula SAE or any of the other... Uh, design programs whether it's the Baja car the rocket teams I think in civil engineering at Queens they had like a concrete canoe team where they'd have to build a, a canoe out of concrete that would actually float it, it teaches you hands-on tech skills I think it gives you a lot of non-engineering experience in like a high stress work environment which I don't think you can really replicate with like some of the contrived like work you know, uh, uh, the more contrived like group projects that you get in, in some of the engineering programs. Like to me, though, those always felt kind of half baked. Like no one really took them that seriously. And it was kind of more of a, just check the box. Whereas this thing, it's like, everyone really cared about it. So it, it was, it felt more like a real job. And then the other thing with the, with Queens having the big machine shop, like one of the things I really thought was extremely useful was we did a lot of our own machining. So we would go through the whole design process and CAD everything out. You know, and then actually go and machine a lot of the parts that we design. So the people coming through that program had the experience of creating a, creating a, a 3D model that you're actually going to build and then work on yourself. So kind of tying that whole process together. Where I think an, an increasingly frequent complaint with you know from people from end users to engineers is that a lot of engineers are really computer heavy and not necessarily as practically inclined. So I feel like having that experience just it, it is a good you know feather in your cap kind of thing just to actually understand like when you're in, in SolidWorks and, and you think like you have a big gap and then you go to machine something and all of a sudden that two millimeters looks a lot smaller in real life when you start to account for compliance and and machining tolerances so i think it's just a i i can't talk enough about those programs i think they're awesome
3: absolutely i think you hit on a few big points there about you know, re- having relevant experience, we, we've talked to a few engineers, you know, some of which spent some time in Formula One. And uh, that's one of the biggest feedbacks that they have is when you're going to interview, you know, they're really looking for relevant experience. How much experience do you have in racing? How much experience do you have on Formula SAE? So for any of our listeners who are interested in going down that path, doesn't matter if you're going into NASCAR engineering, IndyCar, or formula 1 or formula 2 any of them right relevant experiences is, is the big thing and sob story for dr obbs for just one moment i wanted to drive my formula sae car as well but they wouldn't let me <laughs> <laughs> so so they stuck me on suspension team so <laughs> oh. should have come to queens we 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 would have let you <laughs> awesome well hey anytime you'd like you know let me drive your indie car i'm i'm down just let me i'll get on a plane I'll- <laughs>
1: so uh tech heads do the two-seater with dalton when
3: yeah i like that yeah (laughs) i've actually never driven the two-seater well i think we need to fix that and we've got a future episode lined up for it
0: (laughs) i've seen i've seen mario Andretti drive the two-seater around in a couple of races and he does not hold back no (laughs) he's not not. (laughs) he he gives you your money worth uh, for sure
3: yeah, we definitely wouldn't want you to hold back either Dalton, but let's <laughs> no. let's dive back into the questions here. So, I think something that is really unique about you that we've already touched on obviously is your, you know, your technical background and obviously your your driver skill as well. How do you kind of bring those two things together when you're racing? You know, as a driver and you've got an understanding of say available grip, right? Contact patches, things like that f- terms from physics, right? How do you use that information to maybe to drive better? Mm
2: -hmm. It's a great question, and that's something that I think my relationship with that has changed throughout my career. Like when I, if you'd asked me that, or if you could dig up some interviews from when I just left Queens, um, I think I was probably trying to overdo the engineering side of it, like really trying to uh, like apply the engineering, you know, problem solving methodology, or just that kind of really. Hyper technical and maybe too myopic, kind of like approach to things. And I probably got to a point earlier in my career where I was a little too in the weeds as far as data and, and obsessing over the, the minutiae where I was not seeing the bigger picture. So I've had to learn throughout my career, like when to put the engineering hat on and when to put the driver hat on. Uh, and that's something that I've, that's a, it's a balance that I've definitely found a good rhythm for now. But it, it, it was a learning process. And I think the, You know where where it is really helpful in at at the IndyCar level is that you you know you have to work with three or four engineers per car, and each engineer has their own responsibility, right? Whether it's your race engineer that's talking about setup, you might have a damper engineer at some of the bigger teams. You've got a powertrain engineer from Honda or Chevrolet, and then you've also got you know the techs running the running the electronics side of it. Having the technical language, I felt is it helpful to like relate to some of the engineers better and be able to give them maybe more detailed feedback or use some of the terms that they're, you know, used to like contact patch load, variation, load, transfer distribution, stiffness, et et cetera. So that kind of stuff I think is where it's beneficial. But then when I get to the racetrack, like on a given race weekend, like I think in the off season also like setting our big goals for how we're going to allocate our development time and testing time and simulator time, I think, my engineering experience helps there. But there's also a time and place where I've got to just show up and put the helmet on and put my foot down and be dealt in the race car driver. <laughs> so it's you know kind of walking that tightrope. You know.
0: Yeah, I think there's a wide range of uh, technical savviness to drivers. Some drivers don't know a huge amount of, about it. Some of them know arguably too much about it in certain mm-hmm. situations and have to kind of dial it back a bit. I was wondering, as a driver, if you could give some insight into – how you translate what quote unquote, the car is telling you out on track, you know, is it pushing? Is it, is it mm-hmm. loose at what speed is this happening? How do you translate that into specific feedback for the race engineers that actually results in setup changes? How do you change, you know, anti-roll bars and dampers and springs? Can you give a little bit of insight into what a driver is actually telling their engineers when they give feedback from driving out on track?
2: in a typical single seater car like the first thing you're going to want to look at um, you know you go out for your first practice session that weekend like you've, you've got to from a from a almost diagnostic standpoint just like get all the basics right like your ride heights your brake bias overall balance so that, that's like the first thing you really want to check off like especially with with a single seater car you know you can rub the skid off the car pretty quick if, if your ride heights are off or you know lock up tires and you know go through a set if your brake bias isn't quite set, right? So like get those, get those brake or get those, um, big, t- those big ticket items correct first. And that's like, you go out, you, you know, get up to speed as the tires are up to temperature and you can start pushing and, you know, you, as you're starting to attack the corners, you're, it's really all feedback. You know, it's, it's mostly sensory. It's it's mostly like through your, through your body, like feeling the accelerations in, in the car, whether it's how, you know, Well, the car is decelerating how how much grip the car has as you're starting to rotate through the corner the visual and auditory sense is is there but it's it's really a feel thing uh there's no readout on the dash that's showing you the balance right the balance comes from the seat of the pants the feedback you give is going to depend on what the car is doing so if you know once the tires are up, up to temp and you're you know let's say you're attacking the corners. Right. And you're, you're first of all, going to break the balance down into types of corners. So whether it's high speed balance or you know, low and mid speed, because of the amount of downforce that these cars have, you can kind of decouple the two a little bit. Um, so you could have a, a really well balanced car and like the, in like a slow hairpin, but then it's way over COP. IE, it has way too much front downforce and you're really loose in, in the high speed. So first thing is like paying attention to what it's doing in different parts of the track. And then if you're, as you're going through the corner, So let's take a hairpin, for example. You know, you're first going to hit the brakes, threshold braking. So that's braking as deep as you can, you know, trailing off as the downforce is coming away, but really trying to maximize that deceleration. Then you're starting to to turn the wheel and trail off the brake. That trail braking phase is you're transferring longitudinal to lateral acceleration. So right at that point, you're going to start feeling, okay, well, how's the car responding? And that's the load in the wheel as well as like how much does it yaw? And then as you load up the tires laterally and start to get to the center of the corner, you know, you're tr- you're basically w- waiting for one of the ends to go. Like as you get down to the apex and you, when, when you're at the limit, like, can you not get to the apex because the front's not turning or can you not turn enough because the rear is starting to get exposed and, and get loose? And the feeling, at least for, for me, like when it's loose, it's like you get almost tight in like your hip and sort of up the up the side of your back towards your arm you, you can feel the like the support go away almost before it happens and then whereas understeer is more like the load in the wheel like you, you just you feel this because you feel the slip angle and once it you know if, if the car doesn't have the front grip like you'll just turn the wheel more and the car won't turn and you just know you're over that slip angle so then you would go back to let's let's say the car's understeering you can't get down to the you, you can't carry enough you can't carry the speed that you want to because the front doesn't have enough grip to the apex you pit you can tell the engineer okay from you know during the trail braking phase like i, can, I don't have enough front grip it's 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 understeering to the apex and like the low speed corners or if it's one corner like turn five let's say that's the the kind of communication that you're gonna have with the engineer and you're, you're gonna break that down to like the high speed corners for the for the aero balance to the straight line braking for you know, if your brake bias is set correctly, like there's other stuff you can do to affect brake bias. You're also going to tell them stuff like how quickly the tires come up to temp. Is it you know the second lap, or is it taking too long? And that's that's kind of you know, it's 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 really simple. Like it's, I think one of the interesting things that you realize as you go up the the, the ladder, whether it's you know the road to Indy program or the you know, European development program, like it doesn't change a ton in terms of what you're telling them. Like it's, it's not like you get to IndyCar and everything's just more complicated. Like it's, it's the same principles. It's just, you have more tools to address the issues. So you might have to be a bit more precise, but it's not like the fundamentals are still there. Like a lot of people ask me a similar question, you know, say someone that races at CCA and you know, has a Miata or, or whatever. And like, it's pretty common, I think, for people that get into racing in like a hobby sense to overcomplicate things. And they're like, oh, if if only I had like tire temp sensors, or if only I had like shock pots. And it's like, no, like it's it feel. It's if you have to know what the car's doing, like you can't just take the data and extrapolate that to like the perfect setup. Cause if that was, if, if it was that easy, like we'd all be fast. Right.
0: <laughs> yeah. But
3: yeah. yeah. So I think Dalton, one of the things that we like to do definitely on this podcast is, Really break down some of the things that we say, you know, for some of our listeners that maybe might not have technical backgrounds, you mentioned COP, right? So this is center of pressure, right? So each car has a center of pressure based off of the aerodynamic balance. And that's the amount of front to rear downforce that you have, right? Correct. So, um, what, what are some of the things that you can do to adjust? I've got two questions. So what what are some of the things you can (laughs) do to adjust kind of the center of pressure? Like what, what things, you know, do you work with your engineers to, to shift that? And then, um, you also mentioned brake bias. So, you know, brake bias is the amount of brake balance that you have front to rear, correct. Right. So it's the, it's the bias of the brakes. So when might be an instance where you might want to say, adjust the brake balance and why might you want to adjust the brake bias?
2: Yeah. So for the, I'll, I'll go for the brake bias first and actually the brake bias is something you can change in the car. I failed to mention that. That's a, there's a little dial, um, that you can use to adjust. It's a, basically a tor is a little handle attached to a twist cable that goes to the bias bar that basically moves the pivot point. that The pedal attaches to between the two master cylinders. So you just, do, you, you do the force balance, right? And if it's right, right in the center, 50, 50, if it's a quarter of the way over 25, 75. So it basically you're, you're Using brake bias for two things: straight line braking grip, uh, how how fast you can just slow the car down, and then controlling the balance as you as you release the brakes into the corner. And the, the principle to remember is that if you have more rearward brake bias as you're releasing and turning in, uh, you're going to be using more of the rear grip, so that there's less uh, there's less potential for that tire to excel it to produce lateral force. So you're going to overstress the rear tires first, if you have more rear bias. So rear bias on trail brake gives you oversteer, front forward bias on trail brake and gives you understeer for the for the same reason, but applied to the fronts. So assuming you can straight, you can break a straight line with no issues, you're not locking up one or the other. Cause let's say if you just hit the brakes in a straight line, the fronts lock up, like you're obviously going to move bias to the rear. But if, if that's all good, and that, as you turn in, the car is like too loose, you might just move a little bit of brake bias forward because that's going to stabilize it a little bit. So it's it's grip and it's also controlling balance. The center of pressure, as you mentioned, is basically the balance between front and rear downforce. You can express it as a, we'll, we'll typically talk about it in a percentage range. So if you were to you know draw a diagram your front axle and your rear axle, if your COP is 50, so the front axle would have half the downforce and the rear axle has the, the other half, the COP would be directly in the center between the, the front and rear axles along along the wheelbase if you were you know 60 40 it would be 60 on the front 40 on 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 the rear so as you move your cop forward you have a more over car because the front has more grip and as you move it rearward you have a more stable car because the rear tires have more grip Uh, an indy car will operate in the range of 38 to 43 percent. let's say front cop depending on what track so somewhere like indy on a high speed oval, you're going to be like you know 37 to 39, somewhere like a road course where you can deal with more a bit a bit more on the nose. You might be you know 40 to 40 to 43. We can change that in a multitude of ways. The easiest in pit lane is the the front wing flap adjusters that you'll see them change during during pit stops. There's a little T handle on the side of the front wing. After they do the tire, when they're running back across, they might put a turn or two of front wing in um, and that just changes the angle of attack of the front wing gives you more or less downforce at Indy with the super speedway wings the adjusters on the rear wing and they have a t-handle sort of like or a what's that thing called like the speed wrench that they'll plug in, in into the adjuster and give it a turn or two which whichever way you're looking for what you can also do is change the the dynamic rake of the car. So, as you change, which is the uh, if you look from the side, it's the angle of the car relative to the ground plane. As you change the the car's rake from negative to neutral to positive, the center of pressure from the under tray is going to move forward or back depending on that uh, on the angle of attack of the like underwing, uh, and that's something that it becomes really important when you start to talk about like dampers and suspension setup because. The suspension setup basically dictates how the platform changes throughout the corner. And if your car's pitching around a lot, like the rake's changing, your COP can be moving all over the place, which isn't always a good thing.
0: Yeah, that that actually makes complete sense now that you talk about it. And in the previous area of of Formula One, we had a wide range of rakes between cars like Red Bull and Mercedes. But we always thought of it as like a static rake question. In reality, as you're saying, Mm -hmm. it changes as a function of braking and deceleration. So I'm sure there's all sorts of things we haven't even talked about.
1: (laughs) I was going to just make a comment, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, Dalton, but I think with IndyCar being largely spec, the dampers and suspension and some of your pieces in there is actually a largely hot topic in terms of what teams will work hardest on to develop to try and get that edge in IndyCar. Is that correct?
2: Yes, that, that is correct. So, IndyCar, as you mentioned, is mostly spec. The open areas of development are the dampers. Uh, there's a bit you can do with the brakes, like your 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 lines and how your pedal box is built, which can affect your bias and how that changes. But the big thing is the dampers, and the the, the damper is you know the, the the shock absorber. So the the spring produces a force with respect to a displacement. The damper is with respect to a, to a speed. So how fast the shaft of the damper is moving. Important note that it's not how fast the car is going, it's, it's how fast the, the wheel's moving up up and down, which is then actuated through a push rod and a rocker. And we also have inerters, which you might run or might not run depending on track conditions or the track you're at and all that. The the inerter produces a force with respect to the acceleration of the wheel. And so you're you're using, you know, all of those that combination of those three ways that you can control the, the load of the contact patch to Effect balance and and overall grip. And it, yeah, that's definitely the biggest area where you might see a difference between a a high budget team like Penske and the smaller teams like Foyt or Yonkos, where we just don't have the budget and the manpower to develop those custom dampers that those other teams do.
1: Okay, thanks. All right. So the question I had about powertrains, I think we're seeing a lot of series, the future being EV and hybrid and a lot of series working to integrate hybridization or other components of that into their powertrains. And IndyCar at some point is adding a hybrid, they've said, to their future powertrains. And Formula One is increasing their horsepower to about 900 horsepower with hybrid electric power. What are your thoughts on maybe the F1 side and how maybe that could clue in what maybe Indy is going to do and then what are your thoughts on IndyCar going hybrid as well um, and how may the cars be affected by the hybrid edition um, that IndyCar is looking at adding?
2: Yeah, I think and, and to be fair, I'm not as current with the F1 change in, in regs. I, 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 me- I remember seeing some stuff about it during the summer, but I'm just so like during yeah. the race season, I'm just so focused on what we're doing. I don't really like watch a lot of racing outside of IndyCar. But the, you know, I I, I think my overall theory for motorsports is that it's you know it's a testing bed for future technology and then i think the you know to a certain extent when it's relevant to manufacturers and the oems like i think racing has to sort of follow that lead to kind of stay relevant for their technical goals but uh, but i'm i'm also a believer that it's a, you know it's a, it's a sport and it's and it's something that we do for entertainment so i like seeing systems that you know improve the quality of racing as kind of the first goal. IndyCar's 2024 plan, as it stands right now, would be to add a hybrid system. We don't have a ton of details on the actual like driver side implementation like, will we be in control of? Because there's been some talk of like we might control the regen or it might be automatic. How's it going to work on ovals where you don't have a lot of braking? Those are all questions that are still unanswered as far as i know i think it could be really interesting like somewhere like iowa you know it is an oval where you do a lot of braking or or gateway so if you have the capability to off to offload some of your braking onto a regen system you could do it that way indy i think would be tough because you really don't use you use the brakes in indy but you don't use them a lot i i think it's really exciting i think there's like like i said as long as you can implement it in a way where it doesn't hurt the racing product. I think that's that's like the first goal. And then if there's a way that you can realistically develop more more eco-friendly, you know, green technologies through 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 racing, I I think that's also a very good goal.
0: Yeah, I think you mentioned that you weren't exactly clear on all the changes that have been happening in Formula One recently. They were largely purposed towards improving the quality of racing, in particular allowing the cars to follow each other a bit better at high speed. They just had a tremendous amount of outwash, and the aerodynamic footprint of the cars previously was just was very massive. Not only did it take a lot of time to actually pass someone, but the wake was so wide, you'd have to go so right. far offline to get clean air, you just couldn't actually make it happen. Two things I would point out about the recent changes, though. The first one is the cars have gotten much heavier in F1, and believe it or not, this is actually the first year that I can recall that Formula 1 cars are actually heavier than Indy cars right now because of not just the hybrid changes, but also there was some increased structural tests that they have to pass. Mm-hmm. Now that it requires some more structure to be able to handle the loads. And so the minimum weight li- limit for F1 cars now is actually higher than Indy cars. But not only that, we also lost some of our fancy, Mechanical suspension tricks. We no longer have inerters <laughs> like we used to have before. And, oh no, we, we lost them this year, and they would actually be incredibly beneficial to deal with something like porpoising, as I'm sure you, you may have seen yeah. some uh, some fun Everybody's videos about his
1: favorite topic. And then we're we're losing my my favorite piece, one of my favorite pieces of the powertrain for the new engine regs. The MGUH is one for 2026.
0: I mean, now that you mentioned it, that would be perfect to handle this question about the ovals, right? Because the MGUK by definition is regenerating energy while you're braking, but it doesn't help you at all if you don't have braking. As As Dalton mentioned, mm-hmm. that's yeah. one of the benefits of the MGUH is that it can store energy and, and produce power for you when you're flat out on on a straight. So that's one of the reasons where maybe that could actually find more application in, in IndyCar uh, than, yeah. than an F1 in this case.
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm really excited to see where this goes, just as like a like personal kind of tangent. Uh, hybridization and EVs are the reason I went into engineering. So seeing racing pick this up and it gained traction and something else I love very much now is, is very, very fun to see. And I'm, I'm excited to see where it goes.
3: Yeah. And Dalton, I think one of the things that we've also talked about is with the EV series, when you have an electric motor, it produces instantaneous torque right? So if you're a driver and now you've got a hybrid, you know, EV system and it produces instantaneous torque, I I can't imagine what that must be like as a driver who's used to maybe (laughs) a turbo engine that's got a bit of lag possibly. And then now you've got instantaneous torque.
2: It would be completely different. I mean, the, you know, a big part of the driving technique is like your throttle application and how you, how you feed the power in and how you're, you know, going from lateral acceleration out of the corner to longitudinal down the, down the straightaway. And, you know, those combined loading moments, like your, the feel is dependent on how, what the engine's torque and, and power curves look like. And there's a lot of work we do in IndyCar with, you know, at Foyt, we're, we're a Chevy team. So you're working on throttle maps and all that kind of stuff to help like just make it feel right for you. But with an electric motor and a, and a speed controller like you have on a, on a, on an, on an EV, I think you could, there be so many possibilities, right? You could do whatever you wanted. It'd be really neat.
1: I think the braking too, you've talked a lot about braking, regenerative braking is a very, very different feeling. And I've talked about this previously, but it's very different from like a regular set of brakes, even in a race car. So I think that's something to think about too, or people would have to think about is as these changes get implemented, how does it change your braking or how you, mm-hmm. your, your kind of driving style with how you brake.
2: Yeah. And, and, uh, you know, not to throw this totally off the rails, but like, I, I feel like when you look at you know the plans for hybridization and you you are know, weighing OEM goals because they're supplying a lot of funding and technical support versus like the fan experience of going to a race like uh, yeah I think at at what point do hybrid vehicles become so you know does, does the OEM technology surpass the the need for development within racing and, and then 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 what do you do like do you go back to do you go back to just an in, in, internal combustion because it's fun and loud or, or do, do you keep going? I, I, I don't, I don't, I don't really know. And I feel like that's something where I'm torn between the engineering side and like the, you know, the actual technical side of, or the more racing side, you know?
0: Yeah. I feel like that's something that formula E has been dealing with a lot recently trying to yeah. determine what their road relevance is uh, of the racing series. And in some cases it's not actually what they want it to be. Mm-hmm. I, I wanted to just circle back a little bit and talk about a discussion that we had maybe a few weeks ago about sprung mass and unsprung mass. I think that was one of the cooler aspects of vehicle dynamics that we don't always talk about. And sometimes people are unclear about what the difference actually is and why there should be a difference. Why does it make a difference if you add, you know, five pounds on the braking system versus in the chassis? Could you talk a little bit about the difference between those two and how it actually affects the race car?
2: Sure. And you know this this conversation will will end up at dampers and that's that's the 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 kind of the the answer but the 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 definition of you know the sprung mass is basically everything that's supported by the suspension system by by the spring so it's your chassis it's the driver it's the fuel it's the basically not not the wheels not the uprights not not the brakes the actual body of 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 the race car and you can also probably add half the mass of the control arms. So if you look at your wishbone, like you'd probably divide that by two, half of it goes to your sprung mass, half of it goes to your unsprung mass. The unsprung mass is basically everything that's outboard, you know, on the outside of your control arm. So You've got your wheel, your hub, your wheel nuts, your center lock, spindle, brake rotor, brake hat, brake calipers, um, uprights, all of that. The importance and the balance between the two, basically is that you want to reduce unsprung mass wherever possible to the extent that you don't compromise the compliance and the stiffness of your wheel package. So if you can, if you can design a stiffer and lighter upright, that's perfect. But if if you're just going to take some material away and then have a, have a more compliant upright, and that's probably not a good thing. Uh, the reason why, why unsprung, why you want to reduce unsprung mass is because when you look at a damper, they operate in sort of two ranges, or you can separate them out. You have your low-speed damping and your high-speed damping, and depending on the internals of, of the damper, there's various ways that you can decouple those things. But on a force on a four-way adjustable race damper, you can decouple you know high and low-speed bump and rebound, so that gives you four channels that you can that you can tune in. Your low-speed damping is typically if you look at the frequency response, uh, is zero to like five hertz. Let's say, which I mean if if you've ever imagined the car oscillating like zero to five times per second, mm-hmm. that's your low speed damping range, and that really that controls like body motion, the like from turn in to the center of the corner, like that roll from you know stable platform to like rolled over. That's those motions. Whereas the high speed damping to so like five hertz and up, upwards to you know, eighty, hundred hertz, that is your your high that, that that's your contact patch load variation and the the energy in and out of the the unsprung the unsprung mass so the force at the contact patch is really what controls how the tire behaves and the amount of grip you have any variations in that force up and down based on road irregularities, curb strikes pitching you know quick changes in like slip angle and all that all of that is going to come out in some kind of frequency response and you really just want to reduce those variations as much as possible so by reducing the unsprung mass you're reducing the amount of work that the damper has to do it at in 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 the high speed range making it easier to control that and then hopefully give you either more tuning ability or more grip
3: yeah dalton so you've you've talked quite a bit about you know what it's like to be a racing driver we've talked about you know the the feedback that you can give to the engineers and especially in a a spec series like IndyCar where you do have only a certain number of things you can kind of tweak and tune to find success over a race weekend. Talk us through kind of what it's like as a driver to prep yourself for a race, to go through a race weekend and then, and then do the race. Like what, you know, what, what's that about? What are some of the main things you're focused on to try to find success at the end of it?
2: I think, um, to kind just to address that first, like in IndyCar, it's, relatively rare that we're going to go to a track that we haven't seen before. Cause if you come through the road to Indy, you've raced at most of these tracks, you know, it's different if you're like Christian Longard coming over from, from F2, but for, for the bulk of the series, like we've, we, we we know the layouts and all that um, unless it's a new street circuit and that's sort of where the simulators and immediately become useful because with the, un, you know, with the unknowns of a new street circuit layout, we can actually, create that model in the simulator before we go in there. So before we, we raced at Nashville, we actually had a, a pretty accurate model of the Nashville track where we could go and like learn the layout and figure out the rhythm of, of the corners. Um, so yeah, assuming you haven't raced it before, you're going to want to like do some sim time, learn, learn, learn the overall layout. And then from there, it's, you know, when you look at the layout, you've got to decide like what, what type of track is this? And, that would come out in the in like a sense in like a sensitivity in in a as a sensitivity analysis in terms of the effect of various car parameters on lap time so the engineers will you know look at for a given layout like what's the most important factor here is it longitudinal grip is it lateral grip is it acceleration is it mass is it straight line speed. So once, you know, and, and that's more of an engineering analysis that like a, a good team will have a great handle on that. That will sort of drive the overall setup. And then back to the driver, you're going to look at the, the track layout and sort of see, okay, what what are my important corners? Um, typically, they're going to be the ones that lead on to straightaways. And then in your experience either with that track or with similar tracks, you're going to think about, okay, what do I need to focus on with this specific car? to optimize those critical areas the actual process of like going into it you're going to have you know some meetings the the week leading up to the race um with with your engineers most teams will do like a pre-event report that'll give you all the information that i just talked about plus some historical data uh for for my case i'm going to look at you know onboard video old old data traces and you know especially somewhere where i've been before okay where was i weak here last year from a driving standpoint what do i need to do to focus on like from a driving standpoint to get better and then just having a a rough idea of what you need from the car um that's the that's the goals of of your prep and depending on who you are that might be a lot that might be more simulator work if you learn that way it might be more video it might be more data i think that kind of just depends on your style
1: yeah. And going off of that, in terms of just development as a whole, if um, you're looking to change things about the cars or just there's um, changes upcoming, how does driver input work with things like that?
2: Yeah, in IndyCar specifically, we actually have, you know, despite being a spec series, we actually have a lot of tools at our disposal. And I think that's one of the I think one of the neat things about IndyCar that's maybe different from Formula One is that it's really driver focused. Like you can make this car handle, it can make you can make it really tight race car where it's more on on the understeer side or you could have a more you know loose as fast days of thunder style car uh depending on what your personal preferences are and um i think that's different and from what i've heard from people that have raced an f1 and some engineers from over there like i think there it's very much you know the the cars optimized for the quickest package within the rules and it's kind of then you have to you have to adapt to it whereas in, in IndyCar, it's all about like getting the setup right for the driver. You know that starts with your overall spring rates, and then your big ticket items like your COP, your anti-roll bars, third springs. Like just that balance between the, how, how that whole system works together. I think that you know that's the the, the starting point. And then the other thing with, with IndyCar is that the tracks change dramatically. And this is probably true for Formula One. Like the tracks train change dramatically throughout the weekend as they rubber up. As, as the you know, temperature conditions change. So knowing, looking back historically, like, okay, from, I got a street circuit, the first session versus qualifying, your break points are different. The, the rolling speeds are way, way different. So just being prepared for all that.
3: Dalton. So, you know, you've mentioned different types of tracks that there are on the IndyCar series and, you know, most drivers having experience with many of those tracks already, you know, you've got the Daytona loop and then you've got your regular road series. What's your favorite? Like what are, what do you get really excited to race? And, and, you know, do you have a favorite track?
2: I think my favorite style is street circuits. Uh, there's just something really like raw and challenging about them. Like it's more of a, You know a bit more elbows out than than the precision let's say for like a road course uh and the dynamic like aspect of the whole weekend like when you show up to saint pete there's no grip it's super slippery that first session you go out and there's like you're like there's no way i'm going to be flat through turn three which is like the flat the flat right hander going into the heartbreaking in, in turn four and then come qualifying like the amount of rolling speed and the amount of grip that the car that the track has is just astounding so like that dynamic like change for the weekend is really fun to try to stay ahead of and like it's changing coal it changes like lap by lap so i find that challenge really fun uh and then i also really enjoy short holes like things like uh, iowa or gateway um, I, I came from a road racing background and if you had asked me when i was 14 if i'd ever race ovals i probably would have said no i'm gonna be, be a formula one driver but i've just you know i've, I've actually really come to love the oval, the oval racing like it's really exciting super challenging and it just like the super speedways are, are fun like in indy's cool uh but if your car isn't dialed like it, it's just not great whereas the the short ovals you can really drive them a little bit more so and, and it makes for fun racing too
3: Dalton, you 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 mentioned something about you know, St. Pete and how, you know, you can't take turn three flat, but then, you know, by the time qualifying comes, it's different. Something we've talked about on the podcast before is just that term, like rubbering it, you know, a track mm. rubbering in. And, you know, we talked about the the deposits of the, you know, the tires into the, because when you look at the surface of a racetrack, it's not smooth, you know, it's at it, the micro scales got all these peaks and valleys in it right there, which are eventually going to fill in with rubber compound. What does that feel mm-hmm. like as a driver? Like when, when you've got a track that's now rubbered in, I mean, you, can you feel the difference in the amount of grip that you have in the car and the responsiveness
2: yeah, you could you can definitely feel the difference. Like it just allows you to carry, to break deeper, to carry more speed through the corner, to get on the power more, more aggressively. Like if you were to imagine your traction circle, sort of like the surface and like your longitudinal and lateral acceleration plane that describes the capability of the tire. Like it, it goes from being small to a lot bigger. So you just have you just have so much more capability at your at your disposal. Um, the other thing that happens especially during the race somewhere at somewhere like St Pete, is that as the track rubbers up you know it's gonna rub, rubber in during the race and get grippier and grippier the load in the wheel is going to get heavier so that's something that you're gonna actually feel like it'll it'll go from you know a pretty light wheel to like really gripped up uh, throughout the weekend and then you also get marbles collecting off the track or off 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 the racing line, which is you know bits of rubber flying off the flying off the tires. That you know, on the racing line, they get kind of swept away and thrown up in 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 into the air. But offline, they just collect there. And if you go for a long time without yellow, like that marble, those marble areas can be pretty treacherous. Like there's some corners at at St. Pete where, let's say, if you got pushed off offline and you're battling somebody side by side, and you get you pick up a whole bunch of marbles on your on your tires, you're Grip level, it goes way down for like a lap and a half until those get cleared off. So there's just all kinds of different exciting little dynamics that come into play. Uh, it, it, it's not just the overall grip level; it's like where the grip is. Again, using St. Pete as an example, the last corner, of the hairpin, going on to the onto the pit straightaway, um, the line during the race, your, your your actual line you take through the corner might tighten up as you know as that rubber gets laid down on the normal racing line. It's just going to slowly bias towards being tighter and tighter because you don't want to get out in in the marbles. And I've heard Carter say that before.
0: But that's not the first time yeah. I've heard that. I've heard people carding say that the line tightens up over the course of a weekend. I'm I'm actually glad that I I believe them now because now you're now you're confirming that they're actually accurate. That's great.
2: Yep. The the other thing to think about is like the actual track surface. So Firestone does a report that they'll actually detail like the grip level in terms of a like an actual mu number coefficient of friction on at different parts of the track and they'll do different phases of of corners it's not every corner but they'll do kind of representative areas for each track and give a give us basically like a distribution of you know how much of the aggregate is like bigger like pebbles versus like small surface undulations and that it, it doesn't tell you a lot but it, it does give you an indication of the character of the circuit and how abrasive it might be on, on your tires. Um, and each, each track, what I'm trying to say is each track rub, rubbers in differently. So like somewhere like St. Pete is going to gain a ton of grip. D- Detroit is largely, you know, kind of concrete and a bit of asphalt. So that the concrete being really abrasive gains so much grip, which I'm sure for, for F1 at, at Miami, that surface looked like it probably rub, rubbered in quite a bit. Um, but somewhere like mid Ohio or Laguna Seca that hasn't been re- that, you know, neither of those tracks, I don't think anyone alive has raced on those tracks since they've been repaved. Like they've they're, they're the, sur- the surface is so worn and like rubbed smooth that you, you don't have those little nooks and crannies as much. They've just been abraded away. So the track doesn't really rubber in as much. Um, so it does change track to track.
1: Yeah. New Detroit is going to be really interesting in 2023, going back to the streets. Uh, that's my home race. So I think that's going to be a very, very fun one just to see how the new, the new track is going to behave. So, Throughout um, our conversation, we've talked about the difference differences between IndyCar and F1, and what our listeners might be surprised is that uh, IndyCars actually don't have power steering. Could you tell us what it's like driving a car without power steering, and how you stay physically fit, or how you have to stay fit to be able to make it through a full race distance without power steering?
2: Yeah, it's you got to hang on. <laughs> it is the I think an IndyCar is probably I'll be biased towards IndyCar for a second here. Like it, I, I, I I will argue that it is the most physical race car you can drive I, you know obviously objectively f1 has a higher strain on on your neck and you could make the argument that the cardio load is similar or maybe a bit more but in terms of complete fitness as far as like upper body strength neck strength cardio plus you have the heat with the aero screen like the IndyCar car is just a, a, an insanely physical experience right now and previously with the aero kit cars before the aero screen and when honda and chevrolet had their own individual aero kits like those cars were producing i think at maxed at max downforce level seven thousand eight thousand pounds of downforce like just absurd numbers i think they got to the point where like you you reach the upper limit of what you could feasibly do with a with a human without without power steering where you really notice it is like with the car the the static caster isn't super high so the caster being, being the inclination of the steering angle uh relative to the front and back of the car uh kingpin being left to right uh the you know relatively low caster so the depending on what settings you have but if you're saying you're going to keep it manageable in like a low speed corner you know the steering weight's not super heavy but then you get to a high speed corner and you know downforce goes up at the square of speed the you know the downforce is pushing the car down extremely hard onto the racetrack you've got the caster angle which is producing some stability but also causing some scrub like you're digging the tire into the track a little bit and then you're also just like having to slip a a contact patch that probably has you know a thousand pounds of or or more of 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 load on it so the i i I should have looked up like a torque number because we actually have a torque sensor on the on this on 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 the steering column but it's like there's corners in the IndyCar at tracks like Barber, for example, where you've got a lot of high speed corners where on new red tires with full tanks of fuel during the race, like you be the human in the car becomes the limiting factor, like you're force limited in terms of how fast you can go through the corner because you can't turn the wheel anymore. I, I, I remember a story or a story, an experience for me my first year racing IndyCar. I think the first race was Barber because of the way the schedule fell with COVID. And was Barber? I think it was. Um
1: That sounds about right.
2: Yeah. Either way, the um the we got to the third stint and we were going on reds then. And the the, the weight's always heaviest when you have the most weight and the soft red tires. And turn one at Barber is like a fourth gear, 120, 130 mile an hour corner. Like you break a little bit, you go down two gears, but you don't break that much. Uh and there's a big compression as you go down the hill. And I remember like once the tires were hot and say the second flying lap, I, I go into turn one like I'd normally been and I go to turn and you, you, know, you build the, you build the slip, you build the steering angle as you go through through the corner towards, to so get max angle a little bit before the apex. I'm I, I get to like half of the angle that I know I'm going to need to make the corner. And like the car just locks down on, on, onto the track. And I physically could not turn the wheel anymore. And I remember straining so hard that like, I started to feel lightheaded because that was that's how hard I was like trying to turn the wheel and it just I, I just had to lift off the gas I was like I'm either I'm just not gonna turn like I'm, I'm, I'm not gonna make the corner so for the rest of the for that for for the next like five laps while the red still had their edge I was basically I'd break and then just instantly put a bunch of wheel in and sort of let it catch and then get 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 through the corner because that's all like, I. Could manage so during the next offseason I worked on upper, upper body strength. But that gives you the kind of the perspective of like just how raw it is. It's it's a very physical experience.
0: <laughs> yeah, we, we've had a, quite a few, you know, Formula One and Formula Two drivers go over to IndyCar, and one of the things they talk about immediately is that difference in the lack of power steering. It's one of the things that really can't be avoided. But yeah, it's a huge difference mm-hmm. difference between the cars. I'm wondering if at some future point they may even reconsider adding power steering but that's kind of a question for another time they've talked about it
2: yeah they've they've, they've talked about it but, I, but I, I think the gen the prevailing consensus within the community within indycar is that we like it to be the like the most raw form of as it as it can be so i i, I would be surprised the the only consideration is trying to r- reduce wrist injuries if you hit the wall and, and you don't let go of the wheel
0: yeah, yeah i'm thinking of jimmy johnson actually
2: yeah yeah Callum <laughs> as well yeah Kyle, Kyle had oh, yeah, a, that's right. a moment earlier in the he, season. Yeah, he was it's, driving it's IMSA with and, his yeah.
1: poor wrist.
2: Yeah. Oh
0: man. So, so as we're talking about the sort of the intersection between you know the Formula One world and, and IndyCar world, and as we sort of round third base uh, towards the end of the podcast, I was just curious if you have any thoughts on how the current super license system works and the points that. Indy car may be awarded potentially and not as many as it should considering it's a, it's a prima racing series, but I was just wondering if you had any thoughts on how that system works, how do we find talent and how do you judge talent across sort of disparate racing series and also any thoughts on Andretti's attempts to try to get into Formula One and some of the difficulties they've encountered.
2: Now, I, I, you know, I, 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 I think it's just a bit, I, I think the super licensed system has, has its place and, and, and has merits, you know from the intent but it's the app the app if the way i look at it is that if you have somebody like colton or you know palu or whoever that has the opportunity and the funding and clearly the talent like you can't i don't think you can make an argument that like palu or, or colton or, or or Pato aren't f1 caliber if somebody in that in their position with the f1 the f1 pedigree is prevented from and with the opportunity is prevented from entering the series because of a administrative you know rule like that. I think there's a problem with the way the system works, so I would say it needs to be re- reworked in some way. I'm not saying it shouldn't exist. Like I think you know I I finished 23rd in, in the championship. Like I shouldn't have a super license. Like I'm 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 not saying that everyone in IndyCar should have one. But if there's an obvious like I I, I think it's when you look at the comparison. Of what IndyCar, of the points that IndyCar is awarded. And then you look at the other series that have similar levels of points awarded for like fourth, fifth place, sixth place finishes. It just seems a little weird to me. And then, and and, you know, you can't argue that the F1 super license system is perfect when you have like Mazepin showing up. Uh, Yeah, I I was Um, gonna say that
0: that is the reductio ad absurdum for the current super license system. If you admit Nikita Mazepin but don't allow Colton Herta,
2: you need to reevaluate what we're doing. Yeah, it's crazy. Um, And then I think, I can't remember who, maybe Nick DeVries tweeted something and I retweeted it and I can't remember, it might not have been him, but somebody in the F2, F1 world tweeted something saying that like, you know, it's not fair to F2, like that. you're allowing these people, like like, Colton shouldn't get the exemption because you're then like, you know, it's it's unfortunate for people who have invested all the time and money and effort in in F2. And I think there's a place for that conversation to happen. Like, but I, I guess my answer to that would be, at like winning or doing well in F2 should just provide that opportunity separately from whether somebody at a high level in in, in, in in IndyCar is you know is able to come over or not. And I think that ties into the other part of your question, which is what I think about the the Andretti issues. I think if, you know, if the current teams in F1 were a little less protectionist and wanted to play in the sandbox with some other people, you probably wouldn't have these problems or as, as many of these problems like, you know, it's 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 not a given that the F two champion is going to have a, have an F one ride, which to me seems nuts. Yeah,
3: Dalton, you're yeah. you're being very nice. I think that, I think the whole <laughs> thing is a complete mess, and uh, and I say that as an F one fan, quite frustrated. I think we've had uh, ample evidence, you know, and, and you've highlighted a few of those points. I mean, Roman Grosjean coming over to IndyCar, right? It wasn't exactly a smooth transition for him either, right? And he no. was a, he was a, you know, plenty good uh, F1 driver as well. So I think, you know, as Americans on this podcast, we definitely <laughs> want to give the dap to the IndyCar series. I mean, you you, you all, firstly and foremost, are athletes. Uh, I will fight anybody that wants to argue otherwise, <laughs> yes. and um, I'll tell you that the the level of racing that there is an IndyCar is not to be looked down upon either. It's, as you say, physical, it's raw. I mean, the driver, I think, is really a huge part of the success there, right? So... Yeah, I, 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 know, I know Molly will definitely back me up on this one.
1: <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, I, I'm sure you'll peddle this too, Dalton, but it's like out of the 26, 28 car field with the exception being the Indy 500 where you have 30 plus, like 17, 18, 19 of these cars all have a shot at winning. And that's just how deep the competition level is in IndyCar and how just competitive it is. And I don't think a lot of people realize that either. Where it's There is mm-hmm. a ton of parity and you have no idea what is going to happen during a weekend.
2: Yeah, and maybe we're a victim of our own success a little bit where maybe people look at it and they're like, well if, if everyone's that close, like maybe it's not that hard and it's like that's definitely wrong. Yeah. Like it is, you know, it it is so competitive and so hard. Like the dif- differences we're talking about in, in qualifying like there's tracks where half a tenth can be a few yeah. spots or even more and it's you know, those kind of margins when you it's just it's extremely competitive. It's, you know, it's it really and it is super driver centric but it's also like how well does the driver do the driver and engineer work together to like figure it out as the tracks changing you know if you have a hiccup in your first practice and you're playing and you're playing catch up for the rest of the weekend like it's just that's you know there's so little time to catch up that you have to be really on it to you know to get your balance right for qualifying and then you know the track position is really important during the race uh, but yeah, I, I definitely agree. I, I think IndyCar is great racing. I think it's, you know, a, a real driver's series and, it, and it's a fun, really fun product to watch online and, and, and on, on TV. And, 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 and I think, too, we've got some great personalities I think we've got some fun people in, in, in involved. And maybe we need to do a better job of like getting ourselves out there and showing, you know, the other side of it. Right. The off the helmet kind of stuff.
0: I I think there's a fundamental conundrum at the heart of the relationship between Formula One and IndyCar, and that is the best racing actually comes from a spec series where the cars are often very, very similar and the driver has to make the difference. But the best sort of engineering, creativity, and insane design can come from Mm -hmm. a more open series, like a Formula type of series, where engineers are literally building cars and competing against each other with them. So that doesn't necessarily guarantee good racing because invariably some teams are going to get it right. Some teams are going to get it wrong. and There's going to be a huge gap in performance. This is what happens whenever we have a new regulation change and that doesn't necessarily lead to great racing. So there's always, there's always a balance to be struck. I think between Mm -hmm. how constrained the car designs are and the setups are and how good you want the racing to be. I think Formula One is learning over time that that's sort of a, a centerpiece in what it wants to construct in the future i was just going to ask you dalton as we finish up what are your thoughts on the future of indycar is there anything that you're looking forward to most either new drivers coming up or car changes or any new tracks what are you looking forward to in 2023 and beyond
2: yeah, I think for you know the short term there's always and it is a great thing about IndyCar there's there's opportunity for young drivers to come in. Benjamin Peterson just signed earlier today with uh, with our team AJ Foyt Racing. So, you know, congrats to Benjamin and really you I'm know, looking forward to seeing what he can do with the with with the car as as Kyle moves on to his uh, his home at and at at Andretti. So, I think that's, you know, it's exciting to see the the young newer talent come through, you know, as far as where where we're at for next year kind of trying to put a trying to put the right program together to make everything make sense and hopefully have a a, a better year if that's in in the cards than 2022. The D- Detroit track coming on is going to be exciting. Yeah, Belle Isle. I I'm, I'm a little sad cuz Belle Isle was definitely one of my favorite street circuits. It was just really high grip and a, a lot of fun, but a new street circuit is always really exciting. I think the the great thing about the current schedule is that there's a number of sort of marquee events. Like we've got the, obviously the, the Indy 500 nashville coming on is a really you know the race is a bit of a carnival but like the actual um the actual like you know i just couldn't think of that gunther meme where he's like it was a bit of a clown show today it yeah. always <laughs> seems to be that that race no, but, but it's, it's entertaining like, that events. is fun yeah the event's great like the promotion's awesome everyone in the city knows knows the race is happening which isn't always the case when you go to certain street circuits like they do a really good job and they promote it really well the city loves it the fans seem to like it's busy there. Hy-V coming in in a big way with Iowa. I think, you know, hopefully in, in the future, we'll see a couple more, or at least one more short oval, like at Richmond or a Milwaukee or something like that. And there's no, like, I'm not, this isn't in inside baseball. I'm just spitballing like that. That'd be cool to see something like that. Um, just so the, the racer comment s- section doesn't go nuts and they hear that I said the word Milwaukee. Um,
1: <laughs> this is how it starts. But, it's going to happen now.
2: Yeah. And then, I just think there's good momentum. Like I think IndyCar is in a good position to, you know, I, I think it does sort of have to find its, like as you pointed out, Bryson, its niche between, you know, f- where Formula One is and, and where NASCAR is and where where IndyCar lives in that global mo- motorsport space. But we've got some awesome events and some great drivers. So, you know, I'm, I'm pretty bullish on on all of that. And then wh- what I've seen in my social media experience this year, I think there's a younger fan base coming, you know, coming up, it's, it's invigorating the sport a bit, even with some of the stuff that's, you know, the, the more social side of it, like we're seeing, you know, new brands get involved and, and younger fans that are, you know, adding, adding a breath of fresh air to the sport. So I think it's all looking good. It's just, it's, it's on the drivers and the you know the marketing team and the management to like capitalize on that opportunity and make the most out of it. And that's our job.
1: Yeah, I think there's a stat somewhere that IndyCar is actually the fastest growing motorsport series in the world, which is crazy when you think about it against everything else that's out there. Mm -hmm. So I think that was all we had. Thank you so much for joining us, Dalton, for this episode. Could you tell everybody where they could find you?
2: Yeah, they can find me on pretty much all the major social media stuff. We've got a Twitter account at Dalton Kellett. There might be an underscore. I I can't remember between Dalton and Kellett uh it's at dalton kellett on on instagram i have a tiktok account which actually has seen a good amount of growth this year i do i I do a lot of tech content so if you're really just interested in the technical stuff that's more my tiktok account where i'll do like short videos on you know a cool tech like a cool part of the car whether it's explaining how the third spring works or how the rocker works or you know how tour the cockpit and all that or actually doing some like vehicle dynamics little mini lessons like a minute to three minutes long twitter is like a bit of that and a bit of like me spouting off on things that i have opinions about so you know buyer beware there and then i i I have a youtube account that could could definitely use for some growth so go follow and like and subscribe or whatever the youtubers say and yeah and then just come to a race and say hi we're all we're all really friendly in 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 indycar so don't be a stranger
3: I think I think the tech heads definitely need to make a visit to one of these IndyCar races for sure. Yes. So we'll I definitely have to look you it. up when we do that.
1: Yes. yes.
2: And and just to I don't want to drag the ending on, but just to like to plug that a bit, like you can get with a with a general admission pass for IndyCar, you can get at most tracks like in the garage area, up close and personal with the car. Like when they when they wheel the cars out for a session you could like touch them you might even be able to if you kind of if the mechanics don't don't see you like it's really accessible if if you're there with your kids like you know chances are a driver's going to come out if you're hanging out by the by the trailer and like you know take a picture or say hi like it's just it's a different, like I've, I've been to a few F1 races. It's a bit more of a rarefied experience where you have to kind of pay to play. Like in IndyCar is a lot more accessible from a fan, from a fan standpoint. And I just think that the paddock is like geared towards doing that. So if you want to see stuff up close and get, get up, up close and personal with the race cars, definitely come check it out.
0: That's going to do it for this episode of the podcast. Thank you, Dalton, once again for your excellent insights. The next race will be the USGP at Austin. We'll see you guys next time.